Hey, today on the show, we have Andrew Thorpe King. He is a record label owner, author, banker, and so much more. And uh, while his last book was a spy novel, his latest book, Failure Rules, is where he discusses his five rules of failure and how you can use failure as a tool to learn from. So I'll be honest, I was not familiar with a lot of the bands on his record label, but I am a huge fan of self-help books and the topic of success and failure. I had a lot of questions and Andrew has a lot of answers. So it's a fascinating discussion. It's coming right up. Please welcome Andrew Thorpe King. How are you doing? Great, Chuck. Thanks for having me here. Nice to talk to you. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, we finally got it happen. Glad that you're feeling better. And uh, it actually worked out better because it gave me time to finish your book. I had read most of it, but uh, I was a little bit behind just because of the holidays and everything. So now I was able to finish the whole thing. And uh, it's great stuff. Good, very uh, educational. My, I guess my first question is, um, where did you come up the with the idea of that failure is good? Because I know when I was a kid, Failure was not good. I think for me, when I first realized, oh, failure is okay, was when the book uh, Growth Mindset came out. Are you familiar with that one? Yes, yes. Yeah, so failure is good, right? So I guess I would just nuance that a little bit and say, I'm not saying that failure is necessarily good in and of itself, right? The tagline of the book is, after it sucks, failure rules, right? So it, it does first suck, right? right. So there, there is an element to it where it is not good. It is still to be avoided uh, in, in most cases, right? Unless it's kind of just the iterative uh, micro failures of a learning process of, of a pursuit. But other than that, uh, you know, failure can be good. It, it can rule, but it takes a mindset to accomplish that, I think, right? So that's kind of what I learned through decades of kind of entrepreneurial, you know, off-road adventuring, through my you know 20s and 30s and all the different things I did from running record labels to being a spy novelist to owning a gym to doing all kinds of things in the finance and banking space it's like what are the lessons of failure that I've learned uh, and that's really what the what the process of writing this book really unraveled and and uh, revealed to me right and so I think the actual rules of failure in in my book for the audience is the failure rules the five rules of failure for entrepreneurs creatives and authentics so I think it's really, uh, you know, the rules really, you know, are, are, are a roadmap to how to extract and pull value uh, from almost any failure. And so, you know, if you can view them from the lens of these rules and, and the lessons that collapse under these rules, I think then failure can be good. Right. But I don't think it's automatically good. It really takes, I think, a, you know, a, a, an intentional approach to failure to make them good. Right. And then trying to, it's, it's learning from the failure. If you keep making the same mistake over and over, well then that, yeah, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you learn from that failure, it, you know, you, you get hit hard and you're, you're down and out kind of like you were when you, uh, your record label went under and you get divorced and it's like, you're at the rock bottom and some people might jump off a cliff and you climbed out of that and, uh, were able to write this book and do all sorts of other good stuff. Yeah. And so I would say even it's not even just mistakes, right? Mistakes are kind of the obvious reflexive idea of what failure is. You know, it's that it's that uh, gap in decision making, right? It's the it's the having a plan with holes in it that didn't work out because you probably could have had some foresight that might have avoided it. That's a piece of it, right? That's a part of failure. But then there is just the the failure that enshrouds you just because we live in an unsafe world, because uh, the free market is not predictable, because people are not predictable, because uh, just being a mere participant in the human condition uh, can cause you to encounter the effects uh, and, and the symptoms of failure, whether it's, you know, war or sickness, whatever it might be. So I think it's also rooting yourself in a philosophical mindset that prepares for those things, whether it be, you know, kind of the non-faith tradition of stoicism or some sort of faith framework or some sort of uh, philosophical grounding. I think that is also a big piece of helping yourself prepare for failures so that when they do occur, uh, you can kind of objectively uh, observe your experience versus kind of having an emotional participation in your experience. And then you can find ways to, you know, like the, like the phoenix, uh, you know, emerging from the fire. The phoenix must burn to emerge. You can find ways to see how, oh, maybe this failure is actually burning something off of me that needed to die. Old thinking needed to die. Old ways of being needed to die. And to see that chaos 
as, as, as a force that not necessarily is going to crush you, although it could be a threat, but a force that you then step back and find a way to steer that energy into something that create a rebirth in you. And uh, think of the world as a wider place. Think of new ways you can reinvent yourself and really evaluate what is my unique talent stack and how can I find ways to use that uh, to um, give the world uh, you know, a flavor of my highest usefulness. And I think failure can help us do that. It can help us grow and help, help us evolve. But you really have to be introspective. You have to, in some ways, almost think about it ahead of time, premeditatively. Hmm. So with all the things that you've done, like you said, uh, writing spy novels and a record label, you had a gym and your banker. What, what, was a, what was the most financially lucrative of those things? And then also, what, what was the most fun of all those things that you've done? Right. So, I mean, what you're talking about is kind of the dichotomy of money and meaning, which I talk about in the book, as you know, right? It's yeah. Like, how do you marry money and meaning? And they're both important, right? But to sacrifice one for the other, you're going to have a deficiency. And I talk about a portfolio of pursuits so that if one is more heavily weighted on money or heavily weighted on meaning, the balance of your pursuits might create a composite by which on the aggregate, you can have more of a achievement of 100% fulfillment in both the money bucket and the meaning bucket. Uh, and I think for me, um, there's always been that composite. I mean, even now, my most lucrative, you know, active pursuit would be uh, you know, as an executive banker uh, for an online technology bank that uh, services the, the fintech space, the financial technology space. So, you know, helping kind of those cool apps of the world, the Chime, the PayPal, the Venmo, helping companies like that uh, move money in more interesting, efficient, quick ways, uh, instantly cross border and all of that. That is probably my my highest lucrative pursuit, or it most definitely is at this point. Uh, and it carries a lot of meaning too, but it's probably not the highest meaning. I mean, for me right now, currently, it's the, the energy and the passion I have around this book, uh, the evangelizing of the message of this book and all the different ways that it's kind of um, evolving, you know, from, from the book itself, from YouTube videos, uh, you know, from doing the podcast, the merchandise company that I created around the ideas. It's all of that. Um, but even that, right, like that is almost like this overarching, um, you know, uh, compartment by which it's evangelizing my other, you know, passions that I've had throughout the years, the constant never ending connection to music, the passion that I have for music and how, um, you know, the music and the message, particularly of the hardcore punk and metal scene drives and is an anthem and a soundtrack and all that I do and really buoys my spirit day in and day out. From, from a, a recovery standpoint, from failure and, and hard times to a motivational standpoint to catalyze action when I need to get shit done. Um, you know, and then the other passions, my, my, my love of the cigar culture and uh, how that is really kind of, you know, an elixir and an accent to my life that really gives flavor and, and uh, you know, adds friendship and, um, you know, just all kinds of uh, daily joy. So, um, you know, I, I think the, the short answer really is um, it, it's that portfolio pursuit mindset to create a integrated structure in your life where through different means um, you're achieving different levels of, um, uh, you know, fulfillment uh, from, from a financial standpoint and from a, a meaning standpoint. Yeah. Well, and one of the things you talk about in the book that I, I found it really interesting just because I know a lot of people like this is that the term safety file. I've never heard this. I don't know if you coined this phrase, but uh, basically a safety file is a, is somebody who is irrationally attached to preserving safety within their personal and work life above all other motivators and values. And uh, that just is so important. I feel like, cause I think there's too many people that fall into that category that they're unhappy, but they don't want to take a risk. And they're just so caught in their, you know, stuck in their ways especially at my age and the, you know, a lot of those guys will go through this in their you know late thirties, early forties, kind of like a midlife crisis basically. And they don't take the jump and then, and then they're just miserable. So uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like how can people get out of that uh, mindset or can they? Yeah. I don't know if they can, right. If you're so stuck in that where that's just your way of being and you never really stepped out of that lane and, and kind of, you know, expanded those guardrails that you've artificially placed in your life. I don't know exactly how you step out of it, but I know it's a problem. I know that the fact that it's not been a problem for me has allowed me to really live life to the fullest and destroy future regret. Because if something burns inside me, I am going to pursue it either until it fails, partially succeeds or fully succeeds. 
And whatever the outcome is, I'm going to be satiated because I know that I'm never going to look back and wonder what if on these things. So whether it's competing in bodybuilding, writing the spy novel, you know, starting my own record labels, opening a gym, all these things, if something burns in me, I'm going to go after it. And failures have come and, and will come. But in the end, like there's so much that I learn and just being being able to have the opportunity and the drive and the audacity to take that risk, to step out of that safety file perspective and chase after things. I mean, it's been the thrill of my life. I mean, I, I have this Jesse Isler quote, quote in the book, uh, Jesse Isler, who was, um, you know, who is, you know, you know, wildly successful entrepreneur, uh, owns an NBA team. He's a rapper, you know, all of that. Married Sarah Blakely, the billionaire who started uh, Spanx. Uh, and his quote is, um, you know, my life has been ready, fire, aim, and it's been one of adventure, right? And so I, I can remember there was somebody in my life who kind of who almost sarcastically, you know, commented about me when I was doing something that seemed crazy, like, oh, that that that's that's him again, going ready, fire, aim. It's like, fuck yeah, that's right, that's exactly what I do, right? And it's not ready, fire, aim in some blind way necessarily. It's more kind of a modified version of that where it's 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 ready approximate your aim and adjust, you know, adjust your aim in flight, right? So it's not a thoughtless ready fire aim, you know, wholesale 100%, right? But it is that idea that if you're waiting for perfect conditions uh, to pursue something difficult, to pursue something uh, meaningful in your life that is is not um, orthodox or that will require some real risk, uh, if you're waiting for perfect conditions, good luck. You're probably never going to get started. Yeah. Do you find it hard to be around people like these safety files? Did you have some friends growing up who were fit in that category? And did you find yourself outgrowing them, spending less time with them? Or uh, like, do you find yourself uh, connecting with more entrepreneurs as you uh, do more uh, uh, different kinds of uh, avenues and things? So first, just to comment back on the term itself, I, I did, I think, coin that uh, phrase. I never heard anywhere else. I just kind of came up with it and, yeah. and it's part of it definition of terms in the book. And, and, you know, I've always been attracted to those that um, are, are looking for unusual achievements uh, and not necessarily in terms of like material wealth, but unusual achievements, right? Those, I mean, the case studies in the book are, are people that have taken an unorthodox path, pets that don't have some sort of, you know, college issued degree with a blueprint attached to it and some sort of linear, you know, framework and found a way to get their hooks and success uh, in, in unusual ways, whether it's, you know, Henry Rollins and Black Flag, you know, embracing punk rock poverty and eating dog food on the road to get to where he is to now, where he, he's having this meaningful influence on, you know, uh, on, on the scene and on the world. Um, you know, whether it's comedian Jim Norton, who decisively decided to uh, not take jobs that might lure him away from his passion and instead took jobs that uh, were, were more meaningless on purpose, but freed up his mind to think about how he would, you know, chased after singularly his career in comedy, things like that. So whether it's these virtual mentors or people in my life, that is who I try to surround myself and attract myself to, you know, not to like the exclusion of, you know, being friends with other people, but I certainly delineate between the two. And in terms of who I admire, it, it's those that take the risks like that. And I've always been kind of impervious to the safety file attitude in those that have in my life. I mean, I have this quote from Leo Tolstoy in the book around, you know, the best solution is to uh, be kind and good and ignore the opinions of others. And that's kind of been my motto, like, all right, you think that, you know, uh, about, you know, what I'm doing or what somebody else is doing because you're stuck in this mindset. I'm not going to hate you for it, but I'm going to kindly ignore that opinion. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the one there's you, you have you mentioned the case studies. You have so many great ones in the book. Some personal things and that you know people that you knew, and then obviously some that you read about or whatever. Uh, but the one that I thought was really interesting too was a the the pink slip bowler the story. Can you just kind of summarize that for my audience? I don't want to spoil too much of the book here, but this is a really good one that hopefully will get people uh, interested in the book. That's really cool that you like that one. That was one that I was particularly attached to and was was happy to have kind of found and, and blended into the book, right? So uh, Thomas Smallwood, who's a professional 10-pin bowler, uh, he was working at a, a Ford plant in Michigan. Um, and, you know, the grind, blue-collar job, you know, that kind of lifestyle. Um, and he got a pink slip. He got laid off from the Ford plant. Uh, it actually correlated with the experience I had getting laid off from a Ford credit uh, you know, office job where I was a collector and I got my own pink slip, pink slip there that 
really gave me a failure space to explore my desire to start my record labels. And in that failure space, I did do that. And Thomas Smallwood did a similar thing. He got this pink slip and he is quoted as saying, you know, getting laid off was one of the worst things that ever happened to me, but it led to the best results, right? And for him, the best results was in that failure space, in that emptiness, he was able to step back and use that chaos as an idea engine. And he kind of like, you know, saw this desire he had to be a professional bowler and, you know, with little means, he scraped up $1,500 and, and, and I don't know what tournaments they were, I forget, but entered some local tournaments. And while he was laid off from, from the poor plant, found his way to becoming a professional bowler. He got a call uh, to be recalled back to his job and he was able to tell them on the phone, I'm sorry, I'm not going to take the job, but if you want to see me on ESPN tomorrow, tune in because he had become a professional bowler in that empty failure space because of the risk he took, you know, with little means to go pursue that. I mean, in parallel, he was looking for another job. He wasn't impractical about it. And that's another key thing. Like, you know, none of this is about doing anything without um, having a practical plan to kind of build you and give you structure as you go after your dreams. But um, yeah, I, I found that to be a really cool story. Just this past year, there's been a, you know, a, a network show with uh, comedian Pete Holmes playing Smallwood. It's called How We Roll, I think it's called, um, you know, kind of a, a sitcom show, um, which I don't think really does justice to kind of the core of his story. But, you know, I like Pete Holmes and, and what have you. So it's just kind of cool that the story made it into a TV show. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, so and then the second rule in your book is failure. Uh, failure book is uh, nothing is safe. And this always reminds me, I don't you didn't put this quote in there, but this reminds me of the Jim Carrey quote. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, where he tells or he tells the story about how his dad uh, you know, he wanted to be a comedian. He could have been a really great comedian, but he wanted to do the safe thing. So he took this like bookkeeping job and then he gets laid off. And so that's when Jim Carrey learned, well, you might as well chase doing what you love, because even if you try to take the safe route, sometimes even the safest route is not safe. Well, exactly right. I mean, that that's the illusion of it, right? Like what exactly does safe even mean, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's degrees of safety for sure. Right. But if you're if you're financially safe, but you're stuck in a job where essentially like Thoreau, uh, you know, describe in his quote that you're living a, a life of quiet desperation. How safe really is that? Uh, because it's really not safe for your mental health. It's not safe for your emotional health. It's not safe for your the wholeness of your being. So how safe is it? You know, uh, so it's a matter of those competing values. Right. Um, and, you know, I have the example in the book of, of, of the show Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe and I had an episode called uh, Safety Third, which didn't really mean safety needs to be third arbitrarily, but more that, hey, safety ought not always be first, you know, just by default. Uh, you need to weigh competing priorities against safety and see see where it really ought to lie in, 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 the, in the hierarchy, in the ranking. Uh, and it's it's really kind of, you know, combating that safety file mentality. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think for I think there's different levels, but I think it is good, like, you know, as. David Goggins, I know you're a fan of too, says, you know, you need, you need to get out of your comfort zone. I, I, I see for me, I don't think I'm ever going to be the guy that's going to go free climbing, uh, at, you know, 10,000 feet. Ah, well, just if I, you know, if I slip and fall and die, it was worth it. Like to me, that's not worth the risk. But I think there's somewhere in between doing that and taking the safest job and never leaving your house too. I think you should take some risk, get out of your comfort zone somewhat. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, look, I'm a banker, right? So risk management is part of my job. I think about risk right. all the time. But that always got to be, it has to be weighed against growth, reward, uh, finding the adjacent possible. And it's always a balance, right? It's it's the idea of, you know, that, you know, Jordan Peterson is popularized with chaos and order in the balance. If you have a surplus, too much of a surplus of either chaos or order, things will go wrong. If you have too much chaos, you can't function. If you have too much order, you're so comfortable, you're not growing. So, I think it really is finding that balance between uh, risk and relative safety. Because again, I don't really think anything is fully safe, right? Um, you know, there's always going, always going to be challenges. There's always going to be deficiencies in in, in the the different elements of our needs for fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, it just it's, we saw that the other day with the football game where the guy gets hit in the chest and passes mm -hmm. out and collapses, like. I mean, you know, you're going to probably get, take a risk playing football and maybe get hurt, but you don't think you're going to, you know, go unconscious right. for 10 minutes. So, I mean, it's like, you just never know. Uh, but I'm sure he's glad that he got, he's, you know, fulfilling his dream of playing in the NFL and, and those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, sometimes like bad stuff happens even when you least expect it. So just like Jim Carrey's dad, like you could try to be as yeah. safe as you want, but then you, you could still lose your job anyway. So at least 
you want to go out, you know, live in your dream, I think. And, and that seems to be what you're doing. Uh, the other rule that you have in there, money, you talk about money. This was a really fascinating chapter to me. Um, and especially, I think you quoted Adam Carolla uh, talking yeah. about envy and how, uh, you know, you used to be, uh, and this is how it was when I was a kid. My dad would kind of use success as a, as a motivator and a tool like, Hey, you want to drive this car? You want to have this nice house? You got to work hard. You got to go to college. That was a big thing back then. Um, and now it's like people reject that they reject accomplished people and successful people and complain about, you know, like they're taking too much and we're not getting our fair share and those kinds of things. So yeah, talk about that. Like, uh, cause I think you grew up with a similar mindset that was, uh, wealth was evil. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I have a chapter in there called, you know, punk rock son of a preacher man. Right. So my old yeah. man, a religious preacher, I was a punk rocker and kind of both sensibilities eschewed kind of, uh, you know, looking at his money is a good thing or looking at wealth accumulation is a good thing. They both kind of shun them. I think what I learned over time is both sensibilities were really wrong. Like I, I'm still a punk rocker. I love that, that culture, but I came more from the hardcore scene, more from like the New York hardcore scene where it was like, you didn't just, you know, talk about a problem. You just didn't just sing about a problem. You were looking for a higher solution. So you had bands like Shelter and the Cro-Mags invoking even religion with the Hare Krishna faith, or you had, you know, the straight edge movement. You had these kind of like yearnings for something higher, some sort of solution, even if trans, uh, transcendental, right? Um, and, um, you know, for me, I think I, I eventually realized, well, you know, there are some perils to, to money, right? The love of money, money isn't the root of all evil, you know, but the love of money can be. Right. If you go into the failure edge territories of either greed, which everybody you know looks at as being bad, but not enough people, I think, recognize that envy is truly kind of the equivalent, uh, malevolent twin sibling of greed. They're one and the same. Poor people could be greedy in their envy <laughs> in the same way that greedy people can be, you know, uh, you know, ethically flawed and, and, and uh, you know, uh, morally deficient in their you know, chase for money where they're, you know, hurting people, right? And I think we, we really need to kind of recognize that. Uh, and at the same time, view money out, you know, in, in, in the mid space where you say, all right, money is an agnostic tool. It's not good or bad in and of itself. But if we can find a way to use it as a thank you note, where, you know, every time we have a transaction, it's our, you know, our, our it's us placing value on something, uh, that represents our measured thankfulness, then it can truly be a force multiplier of goodness, of blessing, of lifting people out of poverty, of uh, providing a life for them where they can find meaning and fulfillment. That's obviously still connected to us using our talents and in giving them to the world. And I think seeing it holistically through all its kind of dynamic touch points and effects can really help us as we go about, you know, setting our goals and, and viewing our work life and how we earn and spend money. Um, so, um, I mean, that's essentially what that chapter is about. It's the idea that failure rule number three, money is spiritual. Again, obviously if used correctly and not yeah. used. Uh, yeah. Well, because I think you can, you people with a lot of money can also help the world a lot. I mean, the, what is the quote? Like Gandhi be the change you want to see in the world. Like, so if you think people are too selfish with their money, then you need to be less selfish with your money and be more uh, generous. Like, I don't know if we go back to that football player. I hate, I hate to keep bringing that up, but there was a fundraiser for him and uh, the Washington commanders, which is like a $5.6 billion uh, franchise donated $5,000. And this, you know, little mom and pop carpet store donated 5,500. They donated more than the billion dollar uh, franchise. So it just goes to show you, like, I mean, just cause you, you know, you can, you can have money and you can, share that money and, and you don't need a lot to, to be, to make a bigger difference than someone with a lot of money. That's right. That's right. And at the same token, uh, a lot of money does give you more power to be more generous. Right. So mm -hmm. I think there, there's a, a double edge to that. And part of the motivation for many people I know who have been successful and have money is because they do have some higher, you know, what I would call a thing to North star, North star ambition, and I talk about failure rule number four, thing one and thing two, dependency. Thing one being your enabler pursuit that might help you reach your thing two aspirational North Star dream. I go through the example of billionaire John Huntsman, grew up poor uh, in, in a poor household uh, and, and built his com companies, the Huntsman Corporation, which made, you know, the, uh, you know, those clamshell cases for McDonald's sandwiches. But 
his motivation was to eventually do something more altruistic, which was the, the Huntsman Cancer uh, Institute, which has now done so much good for, for working towards a cure for cancer and helping cancer patients uh, and people suffering from cancer, uh, where his goal now is, even though he's a billionaire, well, he's passed, but his goal was to try to spend as much of that money as possible in that good, right? And so I, I think, you know, I think when you see people who view money that way and then are successful and literally use it for that type of goodness, I mean, that's that's, that's a great model. And it doesn't have to be on that scale where you're a billionaire. I mean, you can be a hundred thousandaire and still uh, use that for lots and lots of good. And so, you know, I try to look at that as a, as a, as a guidepost and model for my life. Yeah, no, it's just interesting. There's this whole like hatred for billionaires that it seems to be going around lately, even though, you know, it's like you talk about like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, like a lot of people do not like them because they're billionaires. And, but yet I feel like those people contributed to, to society. They are created products that we all use. I mean, unless you're not using a computer, an iPhone or Amazon, which you're right. missing out if you aren't, uh, you know, so, but I think the solution isn't uh, to take money from them and to knock the billionaires down. I think it's, more billionaires. I think we need more people, more entrepreneurs, more people competing. You know, what is yeah. Amazon's competition? What we've got uh, three, two different kinds of phones, iPhone or Android. Like why isn't there like 10, 20 or 30 different kinds of phones or computers? Like, and maybe then the, the those pieces of the pie will, will even out there. Won't maybe Bezos and Gates uh, won't be billionaires, but maybe they'll still be wealthy, but there'll be more wealthy people. That, that'd be my theory on that. Sure. I think there's a couple of things there, right? I think I think competition is and can be good, but at the same time, I think there's a higher kind of uh, unique value and impact that can be found in trying to be, um, you know, the only of something new versus the best of something old. So uh, Srinivas Rao, who's a writer I really respect, uh, is actually helping me out with uh, some of my navigation of the book world now. Um, he wrote the book, um, uh, you know, Only is Better Than Best, uh, which is also a concept Peter Thiel of, of the PayPal Mafia talks about in uh, uh, from zero to one. And it's the idea that you, you're not always, you know, you want to find that new space. And a lot of times that's the intersection of two disparate ideas, right? Uh, and, and how you can make two things that don't seem to go together, have them go together. Then you're the master and the only of those things going together. I mean, for a musical example, you could think of like, I don't know, like the Dropkick Murphys, like they might not be the best punk band. They might not be the best Irish band, but they're probably one of the best Irish punk bands. You know, uh, you know, maybe Flogging Molly's a close second. Who knows, depending on your taste. Right. But it's that idea. And I think that even is more interesting and more expands the world. Right. Uh, so it's taking two disparate ideas, intersecting them and being uh, the, the only of something new uh, versus just competing against something old. But to your point, like, I mean, uh, regardless of what you think of Jeff Jeff Bezos or these other billionaires, they absolutely have changed the world, uh, and uh, the reward for that should be at the scale at the scale by which the world has been changed by their ideas and their efforts. I mean, scale matters. It's not about how hard you work. It's not even about how smart you are. You know, luck is a factor too. But uh, again, you know, luck is the residue of design typically, uh, and their design produced something that has blessed the world in a highly scalable fashion. Uh, and I think the rewards should be as such. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I also, I'm also reminded of the Mark Cuban. Well, I don't know if he said this or he, this is his original quote, but I've heard him say this. It's like when hogs get fat, they get slaughtered. And sometimes these companies do get too greedy. And my, my favorite example of this is Blockbuster. Cause I remember I hated, but I forget, I don't think people remember how much everyone hated Blockbuster because now everyone looks back on it with such fondness, like, oh, Blockbuster, the good old days. And it's like, no, people hated Blockbuster. They were such uh, just jerks about the late fees and all that. They charge you so much. And it was just, they'd rip off and they, they would kill all the mom and pop video stores. And then Netflix came along and actually tried to do a deal with them. And they're like, no, we're too good for you. And then Netflix knocked them off the throne. It was amazing. I loved it. It made me so happy. I mean, what you're talking about is the perils and the dangers of overreach, right? Uh, you get in a monopolistic situation. It's very, you know, you're susceptible to that type of overreach and, and egregious, you know, kind of, you know, greed actions, right? Which, again, I talk about in the book. I mean, there, there's definitely this lane I'm trying to stay in where greed and envy are, are the edge territories of failure you want to stay out of. But, you know, if you if you stay within the lane, 
money can be an amazing thing to lift society up and to lift individuals up even more importantly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the, uh, the fourth rule is the talk about the building thing one and thing two. So it's like, basically the way I understood it, it was like your thing one is kind of like basically the thing that's going to pay the bills and hopefully it relates to your pursuit or your passion, which would be the thing too. So like you have this dream, maybe you want to be an author. So then you're doing something during the day to help pay the bills. So you can work on writing a book. Right. So yeah, it's that idea. So from a very simplistic stance, it could be just that it could be literally just banging down a nine to five has, has, you know, could be a very low meaning job, but it gives you that scaffolding, that structure to then uh, chase your dreams on the side with a little less risk and take a little more risk on what you're chasing on the side. But then there's more creative ways to approach it that might accelerate a potential achievement of that North Star dream. So I go through examples of, you know, Chris Wren from Bridge Nine Records, who went out and his enabler pursuit to start Bridge Nine Records was to start another company. He used a, a more, a less passionate pursuit. He started Yankee Suck, making merchandise to sell to Boston Red Sox fans. Uh, and that money then underwrote like first 15, 16, 17 Bridge Nine releases. Some could say it's throwing good money after bad. Obviously that was profitable. Why would you throw it after something more risky? But he had to have the meaning and the passion for Bridge Nine to be fulfilled. Uh, and he used the money from a lower meaning pursuit to do that. So it wasn't a nine to five, but it's still the thing, one thing, two dependency. For me, I've kind of had uh, you know several different flavors of that. Uh, one was when I started out in the music industry, I had jobs in the music industry. So I was literally getting a paid education in the music mm. industry, meeting contacts, networking, which tremendously helped me start my record labels, which, which I did on, on the side at night and the cracks of life. And then even now, with a more wider uh, variety of pursuits that are disparate. I mean, even my job, uh, you know, as an executive fintech banker today, the skills I learned there in communication and project management, uh, you know, and dealing with the simultaneity of many things happening at once has really helped me lay out my multi-year plan for, uh, you know, promoting this book and and all, all the things attached to the book. So, like, you can really transpose skills from what seems to be a low-meaning job into your North Star pursuit. And in the end, if you're actually reaching those goals, it makes the, you know, that job or your enabler pursuit, whatever it might be, even more meaningful. There's a connectivity between the two and a synergy where all of a sudden you have this rich narrative to tell about how you reached your North Star pursuit. Uh, back to the Bridge Nine story. But what a cool story. He tells it all the time that that's how the label was really funded and started. And it gives more flavor and more texture to his story, which is awesome. So it's like that idea that you can't really always go straight out of pursuit. You got to kind of go circuitously sometimes and do creative things to bring it into reality over time. Yeah. So then for you, it's right now you're doing the banking is kind of your thing one. And then the book is thing two. Is that is that your ultimate thing too? Would you rather just be an author full time? Uh, well, and everything attached to an author, right? With a speaker, coaching, doing media stuff. I have a merchandise company. I started with the two sold fire supply company, which echoes a lot of the, you know, the themes uh, and, and ethos of the book. But I have other entrepreneurial things that I'll do too. But this is what I focus on for the next three five years: try to build up, build this up, build up an audience, uh, and 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 yeah, write other books. I also still own the record labels and still go in and out of activity with the record labels, Thorpe Records and Sailor's Grave Records. So. For your audience, Thorpe Records has uh, worked with bands like Madball, Sheer Terror, Slapshot, Blood for Blood. Sailor's Grave has worked with bands like Roger Brett and the Disasters, The Business, Coffin Cats, The Creep Show, uh, Goddamn Gallows, and many others. Uh, I always you know, have kind of like two that are more like my thing one and thing two, but then I also have either other ones that are subordinate but still active. And then you know, I always have kind of a redundancy of ideas waiting on the ready should, uh, you know, should they need to be uh, invoked, right? So there's always something. I'm always thinking of something to pivot to or, or replace something if it, if it needs to be. Okay. So five, no, rule number five is that you're, you're not your failures. And you talk about like uh, using rejection as fuel. I love that. Cause I, I definitely, especially when I started the podcast, I was getting a lot of rejection, a lot of trolling and, and those kinds of things. And I use that stuff as fuel uh, for you personally, though, was there any rejections that you used as fuel either positive ones like you like an almost band a big band that you almost signed or just like a really nasty thing where you maybe wanted to prove that person wrong or something a little bit i don't find that proving people wrong is really good healthy motivation but at the same time it can be a good way to prove to yourself um that whatever 
uh, was being kind of like spoken at you or projected to you is not true. Right. Really help you kind of like prove to yourself necessarily. That's a better way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, right. Yeah. They probably don't care anyway. So. (laughs) Right. I mean, I, I feel like revenge or proving somebody wrong is, is not really sustainable motivation. Um, no. But uh, it can be something that can really restore and buoy your own uh, confidence in your own ability. So uh, when I um, I owned uh, with various partners over time, online lending companies, both uh, onshore with a license in Delaware and offshore with a, with a, a license in, in the country of Belize. Uh, and that unraveled over time. Uh, and the last partner I had, uh, there was all kinds of um, schisms that occurred between the two of us. And he um, was pretty, you know, abusive in his uh, depiction of, 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 of my abilities from a, from a character assassination standpoint. Uh, he would, you know, uh, kind of overpraise me when I was doing what he wants or when things were going well. And then he would, you know, overdevalue my, my efforts when they weren't. And so I think as I began to ascend uh, in my, my corporate career in, um, in banking, uh, in the fintech space, uh, just the contrast between uh, how he kind of viewed my competency and how my competency actually played out in the world, that was satisfying. But again, not in a revenge standpoint, just in a like, yeah, okay, I withstood that, didn't believe it then, uh, and uh, further proved the reality that that, that wasn't really accurate uh, as I stepped into my next pursuit. I love it. But, and so then was there any, like uh, with your record label, for instance, was there any bands that you almost signed that you maybe got rejected, but it was like, it was motivating because it was like, wow, I almost got bad religion or whoever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of one that, I mean, there was a bunch that I was chasing after. I don't even know if I almost got them, but I really kind of wanted, you know, that might've been you know looking for a label at a certain point. Uh, I was competing. Um, you know, there was a time where I was talking to terror and that never uh, move forward. Um, yeah, but that, that was just, you know, there was a lot, a, a lot to go after, uh, in those times. It's probably a little different now. Yeah. Um, I never really let that trip me up. I mean, my issue was probably more being overzealous with spending on promotion on the big bands I did get, where even if they sold a lot, uh, I, you know, I lost money for years before I recouped. Right. Uh, and that caused trouble. So, I mean, <laughs> it was the over-enthusiasm of, of, uh, of trying to make a record pop, you know? Okay. So then with that record label, did that, it, do you still own that record label? Like the music that you had on there, is that on Spotify now getting some streams and some money or is it, have you just sold oh, yeah, it off? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you know, the one label is more of a catalog label, Thorpe Records I haven't released anything since 2009, but there's like mm-hmm. 80 something releases that I own the IP rights to. So it's available on the streaming platforms. And there's some physical product out in the market too. Sailor's Grave was more of an active focus, uh, you know, after that. Um, and so that too is all still out there and available. So they're still active and live and, you know, on the rights between the two labels of like over 120 releases and, you know, half as many merchandise rights, uh, you know, and, and it's mostly passive income, but I go in and out of activity. So there's still some bands that I'm still connected with and, and working with that are more recent releases and active bands like the Coffin Cats, the Goddamn Gallows, Flatfoot 56, who's an Irish Celtic punk band from South Side of Chicago, actually played my wedding. Um, so there's still definitely, you know, a connectivity there. It's just more focused. And I have the ability to kind of, you know, push play and pause, you know, as I want for the most yeah. part, but the revenue still keeps coming in, you know? Okay. So like one of the things you talk about in the, this is a good chapter. I think it's called when you hit a rock, let it push you into a new stream. And then you have a quote from JK Rowling, who obviously wrote the uh, Harry Potter books or whatever. Uh, rock bottom is the solid foundation I rebuilt my life on. So, uh, I mean, you've had some, obviously some big obstacles, the divorce, the record label uh, floundering, um, I, I think that in one point in the book, you talk about how you actually had to get on government assistance. Even was that your rock bottom? I mean, that was part of it. I mean, that was part and parcel that followed a, a personal bankruptcy that I went through uh, when the record labels, um, you know, basically were underwater. And I didn't know that they would ever have value again because of the digitization of music had not matured. And I didn't, didn't know that that was going to happen. And even if I knew it, like there was still no money then, right? Like that, that took time to actually happen. Uh, but it enabled me to still have the record labels, but I had to go through a personal bankruptcy. Uh, I then, you know, um, 
could not find a job and was entrepreneurial minded anyway. And most jobs that I thought I could get weren't going to pay the bills the way I needed them to. So I went into financial planning. That was kill or be killed. Started my own practice. And that was difficult. And I was in the Midwest. And two years into it, the 08 financial crisis hit. Uh, I was in the auto belt close to Detroit, uh, Northwest Ohio, and mostly Jeep workers. And they're canceling their accounts. And, you know, I was working hard all day, all night, you know, wearing the suits. Uh, all the optics would look like there's no reason I should not be able to, to pay the bills or what have you. But I hadn't recovered the bankruptcy. The savings hadn't been there. They got burned through uh, and uh, sales cycles were long and I wasn't really getting the commissions I needed. And yeah, I had to succumb to um, you know public assistance. And it was a real um, moment of shame for me. Uh, not that I didn't need it, but uh, it was it was in such furious conflict with my work ethic. It just didn't make sense. You know, I was literally doing everything I could and, and, and thinking of ways to reinvent myself. And I still fell to that, you know, and this idea of like charity filling in the gaps of people, you know, or family, like that can help a little bit. At the end of the day, like I don't, you know, I don't think, um, you know, the government should really be, uh, you know, artificially propping people up through that. Um, but when um, when the gaps are there and they can't be filled in through charity, and you're doing everything you can to try to find a way to pick you up by the bootstraps, uh, you know, it was helpful. And I go through you know, some examples uh, in the book about Stephanie Land, who wrote The Maid, and there's a Netflix show about her. I use kind of her examples of her experience being on public assistant, my own. Uh, Roger Barrett from uh, the band Agnostic Front, his upbringing of being on public assistance and and, and his thoughts on that and how he kind of really delineated between a hand up and, and an egregious kind of uh, abuse of the system. And so talking about those kind of nuanced, delicate views on, on the topic is, is in the book for sure. Yeah, I know. And I think that you used it properly. I think that's how it was designed, because I think when those programs first came out, um, I may be wrong on this, but I thought it was was it FDR or one of the Roosevelt's and it was during the Great Depression. And then basically people needed it to survive. And then, of course, yeah. you know, we got through the Great Depression. And I think for you, you used it at a time when things were really bad. It was rough. You needed it. And now you're obviously not using it or not needing it. So why do you think that, um, you know, because the, the chapter is called uh, the necessity of shame, food sticks, food stamps suck and gratitude rules. Um, and using, you know, shame in a constructive way. Why do you think some people, though, see, I think that's the problem with the government assistance that we have in this country now is that some people never get off of it. And to me, it, it feels like it's almost like a prison for them, like the, the yeah, government is right. keeping them down instead of propping them back up and saying, OK, we'll help you get back on your feet. Now, let's fi figure out your purpose, your thing one, your thing two, as you would say. Uh, why did it, why was it easier for you? You think rather, rather than other people, do you think they just don't have the motivation to do that? Well, I don't know if it was easier for me, but it was the shame that really motivated me. It was the idea that the disdain for your circumstances is the power you need to get out of them. It goes back to Benjamin Franklin's quote, where he says, I am all for helping the poor, but the best way to help them is to make them uncomfortable in their poverty. I mean, you, you don't want them to starve, but mm -hmm. you still need to have a degree of sharp discomfort. Uh, to make you realize that this is not something that you ought to be uh, sitting in and staying in and making a, a permanent part of your of your of your life. Right. And so I think the discomfort and the healthy shame is absolutely necessary. It doesn't mean you hate yourself, but you hate those circumstances. You want to get out of them. And that needs to be there uh, for many people to get out of them. Uh, you, you find comfort in that you're gonna have real problems uh, and you will be a burden on the state and you'll be a burden to yourself. And you won't be actualizing your potential as a human being. Yeah. And I don't think that people will be deep down happy with that. I feel like, uh, you know, we all have a purpose on this earth, uh, whatever that may be. And that's not helping people find it. It's, it's just more like a, a numbing and a distraction to just, you know, like you said, to stay, keep them comfortable. And, uh, I don't know. I just, it, it, there's, I find a distaste in that. I, I think there's a balance between, Hey, sink or swim, you're on your own, have a nice life. And, you know, also just like, okay, we're going to pay for everything for you for the rest of your life. Like there's got to be something in the, in the middle. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. it was interesting that you brought that up that I was like, wow, this is somebody who used the assistance properly, how it's designed and, and got back up. That's what I was hoping that, you know, that, the, that other people could do. So to, to maybe hopefully be inspired from your story, if anyone's listening. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, that was probably one of the toughest chapters for me to write because I'm embarrassed, absolutely embarrassed by it still. I mean, I, I, 
I have a hard time actually invoking failure rule number five. You were not your failures to that circumstance, right? It's very hard to decouple my identity from that failure of having to be on public assistance. Ultimately, I, I, I've done that. Um, but but I debated whether I even wanted to reveal that, let people know that about me in the book. And ultimately, I decided it was important. It was important that I, I speak about my thoughts on the topic. And, and Well, yeah, that, that always makes for the best books is when people are most transparent and open. I mean, with the clothes that you just try to paint a picture of your life was great and perfect. It's like, that's not real because people relate to this more because everybody's gone through that I mean, people, I was a counselor for 17 years. I've heard way worse stories where people were on assistance and they never got off of it. And that that's, to me, that's way worse and so frustrating. So I thought it was cool in your book that you talk about that and how you, you moved past it. And uh, like you said, there was other examples of that too. So uh, just kind of neat to hear that, hopefully inspiring to, for some people. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Um, what is the other thing you talk about? Um, oh, this yeah, because like this, this kind of uh, goes back to that, like using the shitty cards that you're dealt to motivate yourself. I think that uh, is something that a lot of people don't understand because we all get cards dealt in life and we don't get to choose those. You could be born super good looking and super athletic and uh, super rich, and and some people are born poor, but if you're, if you have bad cards, you can use that as fuel to motivate you. Um, so I feel like that's almost an advantage for some people. A lot of the stories that I've heard, a lot of the most successful people had horrible upbringings, uh, yeah. terrible things that, you know, through the Holocaust and things like that, where they lived through that. And, uh, and then they were, they use that as an inspiration to, to do that. Um, talk about that. Yeah. How, how people can use bad cards that they're dealt to motivate themselves. Yeah. So, you know, that, that quote that I used there was, uh, you know, a conversation between Joe Rogan and Tim Pool and the Joe Rogan show. And, you know, I think of like, you're right. I think that is a key component to many very motivating stories of people that ascended to greatness. I mean, David Goggins being one of them. And you have yes. there, there. And Perfect. He, the, the, his, you know, background of, of the abuse, the racism he encountered, yeah. the abuse of his father, the alcoholism of his father, the, um, you know, all the things that he had to overcome that drove him. And it was channeling that anger into that, into, into that, those healthy uh, pursuits that made him who he was. I don't believe he'd be who he was if he didn't have that background. Now you could have somebody else with that background and they're going to crumble and they're going to disintegrate and they're going to fall into addiction and they're going to, yeah. you know, continue cycles. So it really is up to the individual. But I do think that more often than not, a lot of these great stories of ascension come from that. Certainly people of privilege, of means, of, of advantages can still become great for sure. That happens. Um, but uh, you know, it's also, I think, the reason that we look at those that have advantages and privilege uh, and means and when they don't use it. It's so sad because you compare that to yeah. somebody that didn't have that and found a way through grit and determination and sheer defiance of their circumstances to ascend into greatness. And so I think it makes it even more sad when you see somebody who has advantages and fails to use them to, to uh, lift themselves up and to, to find their highest usefulness in the world. Yeah. And one of the, the things you said in here that I wrote down is really simple, but uh, a big sign of success, perseverance. I mean, it really is so simple. I feel like it's, it's a kind of a lost concept for a lot of people, especially this younger generation. It's like, okay, I graduated college. I want to be, I'm ready to be the CEO now. And it's like, they don't understand. You got to like, keep going and go. You're going to and like, you again, the book, you're going to fail several times along the way, but you have to keep going. And that, that's what I, that's a lesson that I've tried to understand and learn myself. Cause I would get frustrated if I wasn't good at something right away, I would just be like, okay, screw this. I'm, I'm done. I'll try something else. Uh, but I think a lot of times you got to, you know, fail, pick yourself back up and just keep persevering, keep going. And that's why I started this podcast. I was like, okay, I'm giving this at least five years before I decide yep. if it was worth it or not. That's right. So I need to cut you off, but it's yeah, a long right. time frame. That's why you need that horizon, right? I mean, people are like, oh, how's the book done? I'm like, well, it only came out three months ago. It's exactly where it needs to be, where I expected mm -hmm. it to be at this stage. But I won't really know what it is for like another three years because it's a multi-year plan. You have to give it time. There's going to be a lot of experimentation and failures of attempts to uh, promote the book in, in that time frame. And same with the pot. You have to give things time. You have to keep going back at it, keep returning at, turning to it. You know, it's the idea of of pivoting, right? Which is an overused term, but essentially that's not changing your vision 
uh, but iterating your strategy along the way to reach the vision. Um, and that's what you have to do. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. They expect this linear ascension, you know, uh, stair climb. It's not how it is, man. It's often a zigzag. It's a climb three steps, get knocked down two. Yes. Uh, get pushed sideways, get a crawl back sideways, climb up three more. Oh, shit, that step's got a hole in it. I mean, it, it's all it's all an adventure, man. It's all going to be full of, of peril, and you're constantly going to have to overcome. And for me, like listening to hardcore music, that, that's been a strength for me because – a lot of the music I listen to, the main theme is overpower, overcome. You know, it's keep going. It's perseverance. Like the Hate Breed album, Perseverance. You know, that's like a key theme that always keeps me going. I almost enjoy the challenge of, you know, I do. I enjoy the challenge of that. You know? No, that's perfect. I love what you said about you step, make, take three steps and then get knocked down a few. I just remember like one of my first big guests, I had David Duchovny, actor, you know, on my show. And I was like, I made it. I, I'm like, I'm a huge podcaster now. I've got David Duchovny and it's like, yeah, like the David Duchovny guests, they don't come along like every week. So it's like, okay, kind of get knocked down a few, climb back up, get some bigger guests. But yeah, it, it goes like that. You're right. It's you take a few steps up and then a few steps down. Um, the other part of this chapter I really liked was the talk. When you talk about uh, accepting division and failure and staying great, like you say how the best art divides the audience, like half people will love it. Half the people will hate it. Um, you know, cause if, if everyone's just in agreement with everything, it's usually not that great. It's very bland. I, I kind of struggle with this. I'll be honest with you because on the one hand, I think sometimes I'm like, I want my podcast to bring people together, but I also th worry because I'm like, well, I don't want to get political on my podcast and state my opinions that might be divisive. I mean, we're talking about like the welfare thing. I'm like, I probably could lose some people from my views on that, but see, I also think like, well, I got to be authentic. So how do you kind of balance that? For me, I balance it by, you know, especially when you talk about political stuff, um, <clears throat> by going back to personal ethos, right? I think, uh, you know, the old saying that uh, uh, politics is downstream from culture, where I think culture is downstream from personal ethos. So just forget about politics and all of that. Just talk about the philosophical root considerations of an, uh, of, of, of an issue. Uh, and people can have political extractions all day long for that, but it's about the actual conversation. I mean, if so, somebody just listened to our conversation about public assistance, I think it would be hard for an intellectually honest person to paint either to anything we just talked about as being, you know, you know, I don't know, really political or even hateful or anything like that. Right. Um, and I think uh, at the same time, authenticity has to still be, you know, the highest value um, and authenticity, you know, with integrity right i mean there could be people who are authentic assholes i mean that's not really a good thing right um but there's a lot of I mean, those those are all the top yeah. podcasters I mean. <laughs> right so i mean uh, authenticity with, with, with some humility authenticity with some integrity authenticity still with an open mind uh right without being stuck in these ideological ruts uh doesn't mean that you don't have ideology but over identifying with that stuff i think really holds back because I just see, I think that it's like, how do you stand out? Right. Because I feel like in this uh, market right now with, in terms of whether you're talking about social media, movies, TV, music, podcasts, books, it's a flooded market with all that stuff. So how do you stand out? So I feel like the people that stand out the most are the craziest. I mean, you look at like the, the, what was one of the biggest stories a week ago is, you know, Andrew Tate is trolling Greta Thunberg and she rips him and says he has a small dick energy and all this. And that was this huge, I mean, that tweet, I don't know how many millions of views and likes that the thing had, but it's two Did people just being nasty to each other. What? Did that impact anybody's life? I mean, does that really matter to us, right? I mean, that's Right, but that's, that's how, they're both two of the most famous people right now. So it's frustrating because I'm like, I want to do the right thing. I want to bring people together. I want to help people. I want to help people find their own purpose, their thing one and thing two and all that. And it's just yeah. like, do I need to be an asshole to do that? I don't want to be an asshole because that's not being authentic to myself. No, you're right. This is not a simple topic. But I think what I'm talking about in the book is when divisiveness is an unavoidable byproduct of you being authentic with integrity, where it's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about seeking out divisiveness. I mean, that's what you're talking about. Many people okay. who, who exploit divisiveness to become famous, to get it. Yeah. Certainly not talking about that. I'm okay. talking about being authentic with integrity, hoping that it would bring people together, but not watering it down or diminishing it 
uh, in fear that it also might divide. And then being at peace with divisiveness if it naturally comes, because you're at peace with what you created or what you put out in the world, uh, and you did it with the right intentions, and it's authentic, and it's truly what you believe or truly what you needed to express. I mean, the quote you you um, mentioned there was from Rick Rubin, the record producer, right? And I talk about some of the artists that he has on his, you know, from his, uh, you know, who he's worked with. I mean, and the dichotomies of them, but they all, many of them were divisive, um, but they were all authentic. And many of them, I mean, you think of the, you know, the politics of Kid Rock versus Eminem, very different. Uh, you think of the, the religious orientations of Slayer versus Johnny Cash, very different, right? But they were all produced by Rick Rubin, all a little bit uh, edgy and divisive but authentic and with integrity, right? Uh, and I think that's the kind of idea I'm talking about is just don't diminish or water down your art because you're trying to be all things to all people. At the same time, you know, don't be divisive for the sake of being divisive because that's really going to be, you know, a shallow output and really not not do anything, anybody any good, I don't think. Yeah, it just seems like now everything is, is divided whether we want it to or not. Like everything will be like, people get put into a category, oh, you're a conservative, oh, you're a liberal, regardless of, Oh, you're hanging out with this person. What was it like? The, the, it was like Ellen DeGeneres hanging out with George Bush. People went ape shit. Like, what is she doing hanging out with a horrible person like that? And then, you know, people, his fans or followers or whatever are saying, why are you hanging out with Ellen DeGenerate? And, you know, they just, it's like this hatred for each other instead of, like you said, I love that Rick Rubin works with a variety of people with, you know, conservative guy like Johnny Cash, who's Christian. And then like Slayer, who's clearly yeah, not right. Christian. Yeah. 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 I mean, just to give you a very personal example. Um, so uh, I'm in what is essentially, a, you know, a bipartisan interfaith marriage, right? So uh, I'm, uh, you know, uh, more libertarian oriented, uh, slightly to the right. Uh, I, I am a Christian, although I probably not a good one. I smoke drinks, <laughs> but uh, you know, you know, I am. I don't go to church or anything like that, but spiritual in that regard. Um, and, um, you know, my, my wife is, um, uh, staunch Democrat. Uh, she is, um, uh, uh, Jewish by ethnicity, but, uh, she's, she's not religious. She's more agnostic, more associates with, uh, the Buddhist philosophy as, the, as a practical living guideline. Uh, and you know what we, th those are things that we learn from each other on, uh, we've never changed each other. We've never tried to change each other. We respect each other deeply. We don't argue over those things. I mean, I mean, if the world could be like our marriage, it'd be great. <laughs> I mean, so it's like, that's kind of where I come from. I, I no, really, I, yeah, I love that. Fun. That's I why I do the podcast. Yeah. I can retain my own ideas, but be open to other ones and learn from yeah. them. You know, I still, you know, when learn, I learned, learned things about Buddhism, uh, the things that do not conflict with my own faith. Uh, and add to them. I find lots of wisdom in, uh, you know, there's things from all over the political spectrum that I can find value on. Right. Uh, and it's, um, I think the idea of putting on a Jersey for, you know, one side or the other of, of any sort of dichotomy uh, is limiting. Uh, and I think you can have an open mind, but still have some core beliefs that, that uh, rarely change. Uh, they still might change, but um, you can still have kind of some, some abiding core beliefs and be open to the idea that um, there's some nuances you need to learn that might inform how you uh, change over time. Yeah. I think if just people can listen to each other, I think it'd be better for the world, but also for themselves. Cause I think you can learn a lot from listening to people who are different than you, people, different backgrounds. I mean, I've learned so much from doing this podcast, talking to people of all sorts of different backgrounds and it's fascinating. I love hearing their opinions. And even though sometimes I might not agree, sometimes they say things in a funny, I mean, I've had some comedians who are super liberal and I think they're hilarious. I've had Ted Nugent who is clearly not liberal and I think he's hilarious. Like they're just really interesting people. So I love that. I love that. And you, you are, do a good job of that in the book. You have, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert and you have people who are conservative that you show examples. It's, it's not yeah. biased in any way. It's very uh, both sides, which is really cool. How do you, here's a question I had for you that wasn't really in the book or maybe a little bit, maybe it is kind of in the book and maybe it's just not a certain chapter, but like knowing when to shift. Like I heard Joe Rogan talking about this. I can't remember who he was talking to, but he was talking about how success is kind of like what you were saying. It's not always linear. And sometimes you have to kind of change paths. Like, how do you know 
when to not necessarily maybe give up, but maybe shift your strategy. Like with my podcast, for example, let's say after five years, I go, well, it didn't really turn out the way I wanted it to. That doesn't necessarily mean I need to give up on the podcast. Maybe it means I, means I need to shift it into do a different uh, format or different kinds of guests or make it a murder podcast. I don't, I don't know. Like, how do you know when it's time to, to shift something though? I, I don't know that there's a formula to know how to know when to know, right? But I do think that if you go into it with the knowledge that you have to be flexible and you have to make a plan, but with an intent to iterate, right? So I have a chapter, you know, make a plan with intent to iterate, really. And it's it's taking kind of these two quotes, like the one from Peter Thiel from Zero to One, where he says, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, plan, a, a bad plan is better than no plan at all. You have to have a plan. And then Mike Tyson, plan's great until you get punched in the mouth. Right. So it's like, on the one hand, have a plan, have a framework, go after something, but prepare to iterate when you get punched in the mouth or when things don't work. And I think if you go into it with that attitude, you're already setting yourself up with, you know, the, the flexibility underneath the unchanging overarching goal. So you have that overarching goal. Uh, and maybe even you have criteria by which you abandon that overarching goal, but it's over time after a certain amount of reasonable iteration. Right. And so I think it's think, thinking about it in that way. So for like for me with the book, it's like, all right, here's my overarching goal to build an audience over three to five years so that when I write future books, there's a built in audience to learn how to market a book. That goal is not going to change at least for three to five years. Then I'll reevaluate within those three to five years. There's all kinds of, of things I'm going to do to try to reach that goal. Uh, and uh, they're going to shift around based on um, success and and risk and spend and all these other things. Uh, and I'm going to play in that sandbox for three to five years and then evaluate the overarching goal. So if you're thinking of things in that kind of structured way with layers and if this, then that, I think then that's a good way to set yourself up, you know, either for success or to learn a whole lot and potentially through that process, find the adjacent possible and figure out what you need to do in terms of shifting at any certain inflection point. How did you learn how to write a book? get signed to a publisher, market the book. How did you learn all this stuff? I'm still learning. I'm just figuring it <laughs> out. I mean, you know, the book was like, you know, Ryan Holiday, the great, you know, uh, author who's popular stoicism, who I love. I mean, he talks about, you know, writing a book is two marathons. The, the first marathon, marathon is the writing, the production, you know, the iconography of the book, the editing, all of that stuff. There's a lot that goes into that. It took me seven years to write this over a year with the editing process, with the editing team uh, over at Lioncrest Publishing. Uh, so that was a huge marathon. That was a learning experience in of itself. Then it's like the baton gets passed. Now it's a second marathon. Now I got to learn how to sell the book, build an audience, uh, you know, do, do the podcast, the media tour, figure out what works there, figure out how to fine tune an Amazon ad campaign, uh, figure out all the other ways to monetize it, coaching, speaking, you know, hopefully at some point online courses, you know, the merchandise company, all these other things. It's going to take a long time. So it's like people are like, oh, are well, you ready to write the next book? I'm like, not till I learn how to optimally sell books in general. So, uh, you know, this is my 100% focus is to figure out how to do that over the next three to five years. Um, so I don't have the answer to that. I don't know that anybody has a surefire answer, uh, but there is a lot of help out there, you know, and I'm looking to as many mentors as I can to help me do that. People who, who've gone through it in the space and have their own unique wisdom to share. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. Love to hear it. Um, here's a random question though, since we're wrapping up here, I did want to ask you about like cigars. So for like, I'm like a novice, I occasionally like a good cigar. What's, what's a good cigar to start with? I, I would go with something, you I mean, you like the medium body, you know, or something, the Connecticut wrapper, I wouldn't go hitting a double or triple Maduro it might make you sick. But, uh, you know, for me, I like a lot of box press cigars. Um, you know, I'm smoking a my father right now. This is one of my favorite brands. I like a lot of their different sticks, very, light and fluffy and delicious and burns well and holds a good ash. Um, but, uh, you know, you just got to kind of try it out. Uh, I think best to like touch and feel and, and, and try them out and go to your local tobacconist and see what they recommend uh, and go from there. Um, but, you know, for me, like, I think you can find a lot of good sticks that are in like the eight to $12 range. Uh, I don't, you know, you don't want to go lower than that. You're going to be smoking trash bags. And if you go too high, you're probably spending money on something that, you know, maybe you're not there yet, you know? Um, so, so are the Cubans, yeah, uh, is that really worth it? Or is that just a, like a, like a urban legend? Is it really, are the Cubans really the best cigars? I mean, they're not bad. They're just from a different country, but I mean, the, the tobacco coming out of the Dominican, uh, 
is, and Nicaragua it works quite well for me. So I think it's kind of a forbidden fruit thing. Okay. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I always end uh, each episode promoting a charity. Um, I think you do have one, right? Yeah. So if I think of charities, uh, one that I would, I, I always think is really cool is Dennis Leary, um, you know, who's yeah. in that show Rescue Me in the mid yeah. one of my favorite shows ever. He has the Leary's Firefighters uh, Charity help the firefighters. I would say that would be a charity that. Okay. That's cool because I've already, I've already promoted that like twice. Cause I had on uh, Michael Lombardi who was in rescue me and he promoted that. And then I, what's that? Nice. You had him on the show. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He was in this movie, the retaliators. And I think I had the screenwriters on from that movie too. I think they might've promoted that one as well. So cool. I think that's awesome. Hopefully people will donate to that one. And, uh, and of course buy your book, I got it on, uh, I got a free copy of the PDF but then I saw it was on Audible, and I was like, I'm just—I have credits on there, so I was like, I just got it on Audible. It's way easier. I listen at double speed, and I uh, just nice. flew right through it. It was amazing. So I recommend it. Good stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Anything else you want to promote? Yeah, I would just say go to andrewthorpeking.com. No e on the end of Thorpe. From there, you can uh, get into everything I'm doing. Connect with me on Instagram. Connect to my YouTube channel where I have a lot of produced videos, kind of animating the uh, ideas of the book. My merchandise company, Soul on Fire Supply Company, kick-ass designs that uh, echo the ethos of the book. Also, you can sign up for a free Failure Rules mini course at the website where uh, you'll get uh, some good distilled content and then you'll get weekly emails from me uh, with some failure wisdom nuggets. Uh, and um, yeah, I would say that's it. Okay, cool. Thanks so much. I'll get this episode up soon. Appreciate it. Thank you so All much, right. Chuck. See you later, Andrew. Bye-bye. See My thanks again to Andrew and his publicist for setting this up. The book is available on Amazon, or if you'd like to listen like me, then I recommend getting it on Audible. Buy the book, write a nice review, post about it on social media, help Andrew out. Uh, speaking of helping people out, make sure to follow Andrew on Instagram or Twitter. You can follow me too on there if you haven't already. Of course, your likes, shares, comments, all that stuff help out on social media and also on YouTube. So make sure to subscribe to my podcast wherever you listen. I recommend YouTube because that's where I'm focused on growing the most right now. I appreciate all your support for myself and for the guests. Have a great day and shoot for the moon.